Welcome, welcome, welcome into Moments of Genius here on CMRU.ca by students for you. My name is Peter Roman, and this is episode 8 of the winter semester edition of my show. Today, I said last week I didn't want to talk about the Flames in my lead segment, but... Well, there was a pretty big coaching change, so the Flames are my lead today. I'll get to that in just a few seconds. But other than that, I also want to talk a little bit about the NBA All-Star Game. Not something I normally talk about, but just I have a few thoughts on that. And then some NFL transactional news, specifically regarding the franchise tag deadline day, which is today. And so I'll go through players who got tagged and some players who didn't. But, like I said, my lead today, the Calgary Flames, and they have a new head coach now. Daryl Sutter is the new head coach. And so, yeah, I guess he's the coach now. I'm still coming to grips with this a little bit. It was really shocking because, you know, Jeff Ward, unfortunately, losing his job was not that surprising because... When the team loses 6-1 to one and then 5-1 to one to Ottawa, yeah, you know, you have to expect that a change could be made. So, Jeff Ward losing his job was not surprising. What was is his replacement, Daryl Sutter. Because Daryl wasn't exactly the guy I thought that would come in to do it, but here he is. He's back. He is back. And so, I'll get into a lot of the Daryl Sutter stuff here in just a little bit, but... Really quickly about Jeff Ward, like I've said on my show for the last several weeks, I want to stress that I don't think this was his fault. The woes of the Calgary Flames are not because of Jeff Ward. Now, Jeff Ward certainly I don't think helped some of the issues the Flames had, but this was not his fault. And the performance of this team should not be put on the coach. That is my opinion. And... You know, he, again, like I've said, he was the fourth coach with this group, and I don't think it's on him. I think he did a pretty good job in the bubble. He seems like a pretty good guy, but it's tough when you lose to Ottawa the way they did, right? It's a results-driven business, so it's not one of those, you know, unexpected he lost his job things, but one of those, this ultimately big picture, grand scheme, it's not his fault why the Flames are where they are. Anyway, Daryl Sutter, so, I'm gonna do a little timeline here, and then I'll get into more of my thoughts. So, Daryl Sutter was surprising because it kind of came out of left field to a large extent, and he's been here before, this is not the first time he's been here, so we'll see. I guess. Daryl Sutter, I should mention, was very successful as a head coach last time. So, Sutter came to the Flames in the early 2000s, and, you know, in a lot of ways, Daryl Sutter is a Flames legend, because what he was able to do in building the team in 2004 that went all the way to the Stanley Cup final and should have won, hashtag it was in, we don't need to get into that, but as a Flames fan, the 04 Cup run was really, really special. And I might have just been a little kid, 
but it was still amazing. And I actually got to go to one of the playoff games that year, which was in the first round against Vancouver when they won four to nothing. And so that was really special to, you know, even as a, even though I was a little kid, I still remember some of that game, which is unbelievably special, holds a very, very special place in my heart. But so Sutter was the head coach at first, and then he became the head coach and general manager of the team. And like I said, he built the 2004 Flames team that went all the way to the finals. And the season after that, so after the 2005-06 season, that was his last season as coach of the Flames. And then he moved full-time to just be the general manager and not the coach anymore. And his general manager tenure was mixed. There was some things I liked, like when he brought in Mike Camilleri. And some things that weren't so great, like the Dion Phaneuf trade, for example. So he had a little bit of both. Sutter's GM tenure was, you know, a mixed bag at best. And ultimately, when when the Flames, when he ended up resigning, it was definitely the right time for that. Because it felt like, it felt like Sutter had kind of exhausted everything he could in the roster construction. And... We weren't going to get a repeat of 2004 anytime soon because the Flames were just stuck in this really mediocre place. Weird, weird, weirdly enough, we, we were still in this mediocre place, but we took a long journey to get there after the rebuild. But Daryl Sutter, the head coach, was really good. I think that's the point I'm trying to make with this timeline thing. And then after the Flames, Sutter went to the LA Kings and he was their head coach took over in December of 2011, helped them win the Stanley Cup in 2012. Two years later, got back to the Stanley Cup and won again in 2014. So he won two Stanley Cups with the Kings. He also made the conference finals the year in between there. His last two seasons in LA were not great because the team missed the playoffs. Although I would argue personally that the Kings were a team that was kind of past its peak by that point. And what I mean by that is when you look at the age of the core group of players in Los Angeles, most of those guys were past their prime. And so I think for them, missing the playoffs wasn't so much about Daryl and his coaching. It was more about, I think, the team just wasn't as good as they were just a few years prior. And that happens. Teams age out of their windows to win championships. It's a totally normal thing, and I think that's what happened to Los Angeles. They are obviously still in the rebuild process right now, but Daryl was fired in 2017. More recently, he was the he was an advisor for the Anaheim Ducks in their coaching staff. But now he's back. He's back in Calgary. He had his first practice today, apparently put the players through a rigorous skating practice, which, good. Uh, I'll get to the flame stuff in a second here, but... I like that there's a lot of good things about Sutter coming in as the coach, as far as overall thoughts. The one thing I like is that he has clearly shown he can coach and get the best out of star players. You look at Anse Kopitar, Jerome McGinley, Jeff Carter, Drew Doughty, Mika Kiprusov. He can get the best out of star players. So that's a good thing for Daryl Sutter. That's a good thing. I'm glad that he brings that in to this current roster. What I question is his fit. And there are certain guys that I think will do really well under Daryl Sutter. But I have to question 
Sean Monaghan and Johnny Gaudreau. And the reason I question those two is because the last real hard-ass coach they had was Bob Hartley. And that was, of course, he was the coach in 2015 when the team went to the second round. Monaghan and Goudreau reportedly didn't love Bob Hartley, especially by his last season. And they didn't love the way he coached them. Now, granted, Goudreau and Monaghan were really young players. It's possible they've matured and they are more accepting and willing of a very hard, you know, a coach who's going to basically not be very friendly to you type of thing. Like, Daryl Sutter is very much a coach who's going to get on your behind and not be very nice to you because he wants to get the best out of you. He's not a very nice coach, to say the least. Very much a, you know, put on your put on your work boots kind of coach. But anyway, you know, I'm not saying Goudreau and Monaghan won't necessarily fit with Daryl Sutter, but I wonder how far they've come because it certainly felt like they didn't really take too well to Bob Hartley when he was in Calgary. And so we'll see how they do now with Daryl Sutter at the helm. will be interesting to see. I think there's a few guys that will definitely do pretty well. Andrew Mangiapane, I think, is pretty much great, regardless of who's going to be the coach. Love Mangiapane. And then I'm very curious to see how Sam Bennett fits in with Daryl Sutter. Very excited to see how Matthew Kachuk fits in, because I think Kachuk could be a real benefactor of the coaching change. But again, all of that, only time will tell on that end. But as much, uh, as much you know, excitement... And as much as I want to, you know, get all thrilled and all this stuff about, yeah, you know, we got a new coach and Daryl's going to turn this around. He's a club legend. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. I can't get that excited about the coaching change. And it's not because of Daryl Sutter. Nothing to do with him. All about the team because of what happened on the weekend. Because they went into the Battle of Alberta and actually played okay, but didn't find a way to get the win and oh man the Edmonton game was frustrating (sighs) yeah the Johnny Gaudreau chance late in the game I think I punched the couch a couple times after that one and Michael Backlund had a really good chance late in the third and pretty sure I screamed a lot of things at my television that I can't repeat on this show and yeah The Edmonton game was not fun because that was a tough one. That was a real tough one because I felt like Calgary played all right, but they didn't get the result. And then the Sunday game. The Sunday game. The fun Sunday game. They got to play Ottawa. And yes, I know it's on the second half of a back-to-back. And I know that that's tough for players to deal with. I know that. But it's Ottawa. It's Ottawa. Like, this is... We're not talking about playing, you know, Colorado or Tampa Bay, or, you know, Vegas, or, like, you know, any of those, or Boston. Like, we're not talking about playing a team like that. We're talking about playing Ottawa on the second half of a back-to-back. And the Flames were awful. In fact, if it weren't for some very fortunate officiating calls, they might have lost in regulation. They lost in the shootout, which is still bad. Still really, really bad. And ultimately, the point of this, the point of my little soliloquy there, was... I think it might be too late for Sutter. 
this team might be already too far gone. It might be too late to save them. And that's really depressing to say. Like, I hate saying that as a Flames fan. But it's true. And the reason why it's true is because of the math. It's all about the math. And I know, you know, math isn't the funnest thing to talk about, but kind of important. So, on The Athletic, they have a writer by the name of Dom Lecision. He does analytical projection models. And so he has one for the projected standings of the NHL season. And he updates it as the season goes along, basically. So, Dom Lecision's model, excuse me, Dom Lecision's model basically has Toronto obviously is in first place by a margin because, you know, Toronto is running away with first place. But then he has Montreal projected to finish in second place with 69 points. He has Edmonton and Winnipeg projected to finish third and fourth with 65 points each. Now, does that mean Edmonton and Winnipeg are going to finish with 65 each? No, it doesn't. They could finish with less than that. They could finish with more than that. You know, the projection doesn't mean they're going to finish with that. But it kind of gives you a ballpark, right? So if you're looking at this from a Flames perspective, it's like, okay, so if Edmonton and Winnipeg are projected to finish with 65 points, then that means the Flames have to be somewhere in that area, right? Like Maybe it doesn't have to be quite 65. Maybe they need 63. Maybe they need 67, right? Like it's somewhere in that ballpark. And that's kind of the point of this. The Flames' math doesn't look good for them. So in doing the math for this team, because they have 30 games left in the season, the Flames, in the last 30 games, would need 19 wins, 9 losses, and 2 overtime losses. That would get them 65 points. That's not easy. That's really tough to do for any team. And especially for a team like Calgary that has been majorly inconsistent all season long it's hard to see them winning 19 of the remaining 30 games is it impossible no it's not impossible but right now as it stands it's hard to not see edmonton winnipeg and montreal making the playoffs alongside toronto it's really hard to see that not happening again it's not impossible calgary is still within the realm of, of possibility that they could make the playoffs. But it feels like it might have been too late. Daryl Sutter might not have the time to fix this team. And I don't think he, you know, I think the problem with this team is the team itself, the players. But 19 wins in 30 games. I just, it might be too little too late for this team. It might be too little too late. We're already down 3-2 in the series to Ottawa, which is insane to me. But that's where they are. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see what happens here. Because I have said this on my show the last couple of weeks as a concluding thought. But all of this doesn't fall on the coach. And even though the players are the ones responsible, it's actually... Fa- the responsibility of the team's failure if they miss the playoffs actually falls on the general manager. I think Brad Living needs to be considered for replacement if the Flames miss the playoffs. 
That's the nice way of saying it. After the loss on against Ottawa, I may have said more colorful language at my television. But saying this rationally and thinking about it, there needs to be serious consideration for firing him if the Flames miss the playoffs. Because ultimately, a general manager's job is roster construction. And the roster he has constructed has not performed. Simple as that. Okay. So that's the Flames stuff. Uh, I'll really quickly talk about the NBA stuff. So this is my second segment today. The NBA All-Star Game happened over the weekend. And I just wanted to make a couple notes about this. I don't want to talk about this forever because I want to get to the NFL stuff. But I've come around on the NBA All-Star Game. See, I've kind of always been just never... I, I've never been excited or motivated to watch all-star games because typically they're really boring and nobody tries and it's kind of just you know it's fun to see who gets picked for the all-star games but it's not actually fun to watch them like the nhl all-star game has been so boring over the last several years and the nf like the pro bowl and the nfl don't even get me started on that that's like the worst television possible it's so boring not exciting at all like it's just there, there's no fun in the pro bowl to me but the nba i think has found a nice nice little formula here and i'm gonna praise the style of basketball because yeah i know there's not defense played in the all-star game i get that right your players are kind of half jogging but what was really fun about the all-star game was the three-point shooting because you know, Giannis getting, like, a whole bunch of dunks. I mean, yeah, but no one's defending him. So it's not really that exciting to see players get wide-open layups and wide-open dunks. But it is exciting to see players try, you know, step-back three-pointers when maybe they shouldn't. Or three-pointers from the logo. Or in Curry and Lillard's case, three-pointers from the, you know, from the other side of half-court, right? Like, that stuff is fun. Because those shots are tough. I don't care if you're an NBA player. I don't care if you're a college player. I don't care if you're shooting, you know, at your local basketball court, you know, by a school. Those are tough shots. Those are really hard to make. And so it's kind of fun just to see that happen is players kind of messing around. It's like, oh, I'm going to try this crazy three-point shot. And, you know, it's kind of fun to see them make it. So I've come around on the NBA All-Star game, which I think is kind of fun. The only other note I'll make is that I love the three-point contest. The skills contest needs to change its circuit because I like the skills contest, but it's been the same little circuit the last few years where they got to dribble in between the, the pylons and then they got to throw a pass and then do a layup and all that stuff. So I would like to see it changed to a new obstacle course. And then the dunk contest is not exciting and the reason why is because they can't ever get big name players for it so the dunk contest this year was Arferny simmons or simons excuse me who plays for the blazers i didn't know who he was before the dunk contest obi toppin who was the i think the seventh overall pick from the knicks not that big of a name and cassius stanley of the pacers another player i did not know before the dunk contest so yeah like it's hard to care about something when the name like the, there's no star power in this dunk contest 
And if we look in years past, like last year, you know, Derek Jones and Aaron Gordon, Pat Connaughton, Dwight Howard's a little bit of a bigger name, but at this point he's not a star player anymore. And then in 2019, Diallo, Dennis Smith Jr., Miles Bridges, John Collins. Yeah, because those guys are racking up the the star, the superstar, like, acumens. Like, no, like, those guys, nice players, but there's no star power there. In the three-point contest, you know, Steph Curry's in it, and Donovan Mitchell's in it, and Jason Tatum's in it, and last year you had Devin Booker in it. The year before that, Damian Lillard was in it, and, you know, Chris Middleton was in it, and then you had Bradley Beal, and then you had Klay Thompson. Like, you have legit players in this three-point contest, but you don't have the same in the dunk contest, and so that's kind of my, my overall thought on that. All right, on to the final segment of the day, NFL news. So today was the franchise tag deadline day, so teams had to use franchise tag today otherwise they couldn't use it on players players would then become free agents so i'll start with non-franchise tag news because it was just a big signing news dak prescott signed a four-year 160 million dollar contract he finally got paid by dallas and this by signing the long-term deal they're actually able to get his cap number down this year which is good because the salary cap is going down and every team needs to find ways to save money so and when I mean save money, I don't mean, I mean save money against the cap. Because in the NFL, it's really weird with how it works. But basically, the money a player makes doesn't always equal their salary cap hit. The salary cap hit can be man manipulated in a lot of ways. So anyway, Dak Prescott got paid. I'm glad he got paid. Again, I'll never, never get mad at a player for getting paid. What I will say, though, is that it's a lot of money. And I think think Dallas made a mistake not paying him earlier when they could have gotten him cheaper because I feel like they overpaid but Dak Prescott's a good quarterback and I'm glad he got paid okay other news so Tampa Bay had a couple of notables Chris Godwin got the franchise tag so he's staying with the team on the one-year contract there's still a possibility they could do the long-term thing but for now he's staying on the one-year deal and Levante David signed a two-year 25 million dollar contract notably though it had three voidable years at the end of the contract. And if you want to know what voidable years are, they're really tough to explain, and I don't really have the time for it. But let's just say it's a way for teams to push the cap hit of a contract down the road. It's kicking the can down the road, basically. And it allows the salary cap hit for the current season to be really small. So Levante David, despite the fact it's a two-year, $25 million contract, his salary cap hit for this year is only $3.5 and it's because of those three voidable years at the end of the contract. So I hope that makes sense. But it's basically the cap hit that should have come from this year is now going to be pushed back to a future year because Tampa Bay is trying to worry about the now as opposed to the future, which makes sense. They're a team trying to win a championship again. Shaq Barrett, though, because he didn't get the franchise tag, is now a free agent. So he's probably the best pass rusher available on the market for somebody. Bud Dupree, another pass rusher, is going to be available. He was not tagged by the Steelers. So another one, in, looking at you, Tennessee, if you need pass rushers, there are guys. The Giants tagged Leonard Williams, so he's going to be staying around. I think that's a good move for them. Aaron Jones did not get the tag, so he is a free agent. I think he's 
definitely the best running back available. As for teams that could potentially make a run at Aaron Jones, maybe the Jets, Dolphins, Patriots, football team, and I mean Washington. <laughs> they still don't have a name, but Aaron Jones certainly will command a reasonable price tag, I think, in free agency. The Saints surprisingly tagged Marcus Williams today, and that I thought was notable because the Saints have like no cap space, and so whatever cap space they would have had is now going to Williams on this franchise tag. And I think the question has to be asked, do they have even enough do they have enough money to pay Jameis Winston? Because it sounds like they want to bring back Jameis Winston. But are they going to have the money to do it? Cuz Winston's not going to take a minimum contract. He's going to want a, you know, a pretty good pay raise. We'll see. We'll be interesting. The Panthers tagged Taylor Moten. That's good right there. Good to keep him for the O-line. The Patriots traded for Trent Brown at left tackle, which is interesting. He was their former left tackle who then left for the Raiders on a big contract, and now he's been traded back. But they did let Joe Thune go, and he's now a free agent. Good offensive guard for teams who need one. Hunter Henry was not tagged by the Chargers, so he'll be a free agent. He's probably the best tight end available, I would say. And then, lastly, the Chicago Bears. The Bears tagged Robinson. And there was, you know, speculation that they would tag Allen Robinson. But, of course, the question has to be asked, are they going to get Russell Wilson? The Bears have been in talks with Russell Wilson. Or, sorry, excuse me, with the Seahawks about Russell Wilson, to correct my words. Because Seattle has been, you know, answering calls on Wilson. The question, though, because Seattle, in order to trade Wilson, would have to incur like a $39 million hit on their salary cap. So the Bears basically would have to make Seattle an offer that they could not refuse. And if I'm Chicago, this is the price tag I would offer. I would go for three first-round picks, a second-round pick probably next year, maybe throw in like a a mid-round pick this year, like a third-round pick this year. And I would throw in Roquan Smith, their really good young middle linebacker. And I would also put in Jalen Johnson, their pretty good rookie corner. That would be the package. I would go Roquan Smith, Jalen Johnson, and a whole bunch of picks. And the reason I would do that as a trade offer is because Seattle would want to build the defense, ideally. And if they don't want Nick Foles, which I'm not sure if they would, but if they don't want Nick Foles, you have to appeal to the Seahawks through the defensive side of the ball. I do want to mention, though, Seattle would be crazy to trade Wilson because he's like a future Hall of Famer. I, I don't know how you would trade Russell Wilson, but there's a little bit of smoke to the fire. So we'll see if it gets any bigger than that, but should be fun and exciting to watch over the next week. Anyway, that's it. That's all I got for today. I want to thank you for listening in to my show next week crazy crazy champions league review i know the games happened today but i'm going to talk about them next week because i want to be able to watch them and kind of gather my thoughts but that juventus and porto game was nuts so i will have all of that next week and finally for today i want to thank everybody and once again be happy be healthy and stay safe